I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. This is episode 37, and I'm your co-host, Hoy. And with me, as always, is the seductive shape changer, Jeff Goad. <laughs> Hello, Mark <laughs> Purr. <laughs> wow. with us is very special guest, Danny Neary. Hi. Uh, hi, co-host of the Cyphercast, participant in the Tales and Blood and Stone, uh, Shadows of the Demon Lord actual play podcast. Uh, game master and player on the Greyhawk channel Twitch. Uh, Greyhawk channel on Twitch. Yeah. Hi, Danny. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on. I was psyched. Hello. Total pleasure. Yeah, it's awesome to have you here. I was okay. saying earlier that I am so happy you invited me on because it got my ass got me to read again, which I have been lacking so much of. So I needed that. So I as a yeah, uh, going into that. So, what was your sort of background in gaming, and how did you connect with the sort of concept of Appendix N, if at all? Um, so I've been gaming since I was twelve years old, which I'm not going to date myself too bad, but it was a long time ago. It was when Thacko <laughs> was a thing, and it was under the bleachers at summer camp, and uh, that's how it all started. And I've been addicted ever since. It took me, I'd say, eight years to actually like run a game from starting to play. But I was pretty young when I started running and then I took a big break off um, of running and just playing and then I got the bug again. So the Appendix N, I have the second edition books. I have the AD&D books. I have them all. I collected them. Um, they were my babies. If you, if the listeners could see my the background right now, I just have a library like full of old books because to me, they're like the most wonderful things ever. Opening them, you get all the nostalgia. It's just glorious. Yes. Right. Mm. And so did you sort of cotton onto the fiction relatively early on, or was that something sort of later in your process as a gamer? It was pretty early, but it wasn't necessarily the books that they suggested. I started out, I, you know, well, very young. It was C.S. Lewis, and that was my original bridge into fantasy. But then I got right. really big into Dragonlance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just kind of snowballed into there to whatever I could get my hands on at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems like you also have a, a strong horror bent based on both your uh, podcasting and sort of a little bit on your tw uh, on your Twitter feed there. Oh, so. oh yeah. I love me some uh, Lovecraft. And being from Rhode Island, it just is the natural feed in to do. Right, right. <laughs> I like the slow burn really bad. I just love yeah. it. <laughs> That's awesome. Great, great. So uh, this book, as, it's, as I was just saying uh, before we started, it seems like it would be right up your alley. This is Darker Than You Think by Jack Williamson. Uh, do we have any preamble, Jeff, that we want to say before we, uh, I guess, which edition we're dealing with and what have you? Sure. So yeah. let's let's first discuss the actual copies or how how we went about reading it this uh, for this episode. The one that I'm reading is the 1963 paperback. It's the Lancer Science Fiction Library paperback with the. Oh, you're reading the same one, um, Hoy. I'm going to ask you to pronounce the uh, the artist's name because yeah. I know I'm going to mess it up. That is uh, Ed M. Schwiller. Ed M. Uh, Schwiller. Right. Okay. And this may or may not be his wife because he uses his wife as a model quite frequently. Um, and well, this if is also she is, she's got some really intense, crazy eyes. I love it. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. And this is also one of my Chinatown dumpster finds. No way. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> 
Yeah, and the cover is cool because like it's kind of weirdly minimalist because like it's just she's in the just in the very bottom corner of the picture and she's got the big crazy eyes and the long flowing red hair and there's like the the corner of the saber tooth tiger head. Right, right. So you want it's to, very uh, cool. Danny, you want to tell us about your copy there? Yeah, so that's very different from the cover of mine, which it looks like I have a date of 1999 on there. So mine is a much Ooh. newer edition hardcover I got from my library. And this one has the, you know, the typical girl in the bikini with the this, you know, moist chest and the hair out and that, <laughs> that face that looks like it's, you know, very close to something. Um, and you just see a little werewolf claw coming from her hand and a uh, very animalistic eyeball in the background. But it's a pretty sexy picture. Oh, yeah. And her hair is flying everywhere. Oh, yeah. It's not red. Interestingly it enough. Looks, it it's looks very uh, third edition artwork there almost, I guess. That was yeah. that style. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fantastic. And before we uh, dive too deep into our conversation about the book, let's quickly check in on our Hygaxian word of the day. Lycanthropy. Lycanthropy. <laughs> Lycanthropy. So lycanthropy, holy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is the first story in the collection we've read where we've encountered, I'm sorry, this is the first story in the project we've gone through where we've encountered the word lycanthropy. Is Uh, that correct? I don't recall it popping up. I mean, we certainly had sort of weird creatures before, but the actual use of the word lycanthropy, I don't think I've seen in a while. Yeah, because we we had some we had a werewolf in the Harold Shea stories, and we've we've encountered some kind of yeah some werewolfy stuff, but I don't think we've encountered the word lycanthropy itself yet. Okay. So it feels like it's definitely a very kind of Gary Gygax word, very much used in early ADD from the very beginning. Uh, so I wanted to include that as our Hygaxian word of the day. Cool, Danny, do you have a, a candidate? Oh goodness. <laughs> We're catching you off guard with this one. Can I just back yours up? Because that that seems uh, correct. Right. <laughs> uh, I'll throw one in. Yeah. Oh, okay. This, okay. Nice. Malodor, because that one keeps on yes. popping up all the time. Which is malodor uh, and malodorous are great words. Right. And actually, let me actually throw something else interesting, which is that I, as a total weirdo that I am, found this Jack Williamson hardcover at the Strand, which actually has the novella version of the book. And so I actually oh. read that before the novel yesterday. And it actually is probably actually better as a novel, but it doesn't have the word malodor in there at all and doesn't have a bunch of the other stuff. We'll talk about that as we go along. But there, there Interesting. Go. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Maybe so I will throw a word right in. The... Yes, please. And it's not as good as yours or, you know, as smart sounding, but subconscious because that was a theme that I kept on loving that they like hit on with so many things and it kind of drew me in. Ooh, I go. like that. Yeah, the, the psychological component to the story. Yes. So let's let's go ahead and start chatting about the book. Danny, what'd you think of it? I had fun. Uh, it was not the fastest paced book. And I guess that's me, you know, with what I, I like the slow burns. But this one was a little wordy in a way that I was like, all right, come on. I, I want to get to some meat and bones. But I did like it. I loved the psychological aspect. I love there's a doctor in this that just made me so happy with all the, the BS he was spewing to people, um, <laughs> saying it in science form. I know I did enjoy it. I did. I agree about the pacing. What was interesting to me is in the, it, while we've been reading these Appendix N stories, one of the things we constantly comment on is how fast paced they are, how in the course of 10 pages, you know, you could have like gone on a ship, completely traveled to a different continent. And like, suddenly you're like in a brand new kingdom or, on a, or, or you've hopped in a rocket ship. And now you're like fighting with some like wizard on a different planet. This the the pacing of darker than you think. Although it's written in 1940, 
really feels much more like the pacing of a contemporary novel than mm-hmm. an Appendix N era novel. Right. Would you agree, Hoy? I would. And it's funny that you mentioned the pacing because, as you said, all the things happens in, in the blink of an eye, whereas this one is literally just three days and takes place over 220 oh. pages. <laughs> right. right. Um, that didn't true. occur to me, but you're right. That's, it's only three days. Wow. Right. <laughs> um, but the um, yeah, I think the novella um, actually, even though it was shorter, didn't feel significantly faster in that regard. So it is about this sort of um, slow transformation. There's actually the the literal transformations and then the slow psychological transformation that that you really hit on there, Danny. Um, and and a really interesting piece of background. I don't know if we want to get into this or just talk about the story first, and then I'll throw the background in afterwards. Um, uh, well, I'm to you guys. Uh, oh, you got to um, say it now. Well, well, th- I, yeah, I just say if you frame it like that, we I have to know. Like that. Okay, so uh, <laughs> so uh, so uh, Jack Williamson grew up in basically hard scrabble Texas and then New Mexico, and then he was like the very sickly as a child, although he had like eight brothers and sisters. So he was turned to writing, and he became a pulp writer, and eventually was actually doing fairly well, but he was still not. He was still not. He was having health problems, and so he decided to go into basically commit himself to a psychological institution even though he had already like in the, like, say around 1938 or so. And um, this is actually a sort of thinly veiled portrait of that year that he was in psychotherapy. Oh, oh. interesting. <laughs> and he actually, there was actually a case study that his doctor wrote about him that fictionalized. And then he wrote this while he was still under therapy. And then he revised it eight years later after World War II. And that's especially interesting given how the novel ends, because in the end of the novel, the, we, we discover that this whole thing is actually potentially um, actually f- nonfiction. Right. And it's written from the perspective of a percep- per- perception of Sam Quain as kind of a warning right. about the dangers of witches and lycanthropes. Right. So it's hey. interesting that in real life, <laughs> when Jack Williamson wrote it, it was also kind of nonfiction right. and potentially a warning against psychotherapy. Uh, no, he, he said it actually helped him, but it was it was it was okay. an interesting process, and that the doctor. There's some quotes from this guy wrote an essay about it, where the doctor is actually very dismissive of science fiction, saying it's basically juvenile, you know, masturbatory behavior. <laughs> oh sure, right. that he's going home and reading then. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so I have a question uh, to Jack Williams, uh, Williamson then. Did he get served bourbon in his hospital? That's a good question. Because <laughs> I and read that, that seems... I'm like, damn. Right. <laughs> You're like, that's a pretty swanky joint he's hanging out at. He got, right, he got three drinks a day. That's mm-hmm. pretty good, right? Yeah. <laughs> also, my question to Jack Williamson is, can you just take off from work whenever you want and not have to check in with your bosses? Because like the main character kept doing that. And he, even when he checked himself in the hospital, he's like, yeah, I might be here for a few days. But it's like he didn't need to tell anybody, right, right. including <laughs> his employer, that he was just going to be gone for a while. And don't worry, they'll put the the bill don't worry about right, him right. jack well that's because he was probably later on he was already trending towards academia you know later on he also for the rest of his life he was a professor at eastern new mexico state university and so he was mm-hmm. also one of the founders of science fiction writers of america and other things and stayed in academic his entire career and then he actually only died i think about 10 years ago so he was like 90 something when he died and was writing up yeah. till like you know two or three years before he died so uh, that's amazing awesome. yeah fascinating so danny yeah. One of the things that we encounter quite a bit in reading these, um, reading this fiction kind of from this era is that they can t- tend to have problematic depictions of people of color, queer people, and women. I don't really feel like there are really any depictions of people of color or queer people in here, but we have a bunch of women in this story. How did you feel about the way women were portrayed in this 
book that was written in 1940. You know, it actually didn't bother me. Um, taking it from where it's from, I've read a lot worse that, you know, all the woman was asking for it, like blatant, horrible things. Uh, yeah. I got what they were coming from. It was, you know, the whole witch seduction thing. And then the wife at home, she was being a supportive, like it was, I didn't think it was outrageous. I really didn't. I didn't. I not once felt like, oh, this guy's a jerk. I would agree. I felt like the I feel like the the three main women we encountered in this story would be um would be the witch, would be Rowena, Who's the, awesome. the the wife of the doctor, mm-hmm. who was like this blind badass. Yeah. Um, and then we had Nora, who was just kind of the concerned wife. Right. But like the I nurses feel like were pretty the memorable had, too, were by the way. Really well. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's true too. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like for 1940, like we actually had very fleshed out, interesting female characters. And I'm, I'm not used to that. For mm-hmm. sure. And ones that are breaking away from abusive situations, ones that are standing up for themselves, no matter the means. I I had no problem with that. Right. I thought it was in good. Fact, um, in fact, April the Witch, April, what's her last name here? April Bell. Is it Bell? April yeah. Bell is in fact, in many ways, sort of the instigator, the sort of... Um, sort of also the sort of the wizard figure that sort of brings Bar- Will Barbie to new knowledge. Right. And, and, That's absolutely and the mentor. True. So, so she- we do encounter that, like that dark, evil, magical woman though, quite a bit in appendix N. like that's, that's not unusual. Right. I have a confession right up for the bats, just for full disclosure. I have the biggest hots for evil women. Like that is my my soft spot. So if I start talking about April Bell and go a little off the rails, you can say, Danny, rein it in. But yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I had to make a note at one point because at one point he looks at April Bell and says, even, even if you are a witch, I'm under your spell or something like that. And I'm like, dude, you know that she murdered a kitten in her purse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right through that like, little kitten's heart. <laughs> yeah, it just shoved a pin through its heart. And it's like, you know, I I get like the the like the bad boy or like the evil woman, but like come on, I don't know if I could be attracted to somebody who I knew literally murdered a kitten in their purse. <laughs> <laughs> the kitten thing's a little harsh, especially like the what is the title of the chapter? Um or the, the picture of it with like the the kitten, you know what's going to happen. Like, no. <laughs> Oh, I didn't have any pictures. You had a picture? Oh, I had pictures, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's oh, called what? The Kitten Killing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And and wow. we should also add that the kitten is not only killed, the kitten is actually a murder weapon, too, in this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's also true. Oh, wait. Yeah, they garroted the kitten with a ribbon. Yep. I'm saying they, she, she garroted the kitten with a ribbon and shoved a metal pin through its heart. Right. And then the the, the kitten dander was the the uh, cause of death to Dr. Mondrick himself, which is, you know, phenomenal. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, the, the long distance kitten dander. Right, right. So now the interesting thing is that you mentioned you really like Rowena and Rowena is actually barely present in the novella. The whole Rowena subplots are not in the novella. So that he totally really? expanded that and added that for the novel. So that, that's I if oh I would that's not what I would edit out. Yeah. She's fantastic. No. Right, so I, yeah, so I think he added that in uh, as he was reworking that, and also the oh wait the novella predates yes yes the novel yeah oh yeah, he wrote it in 1940 and then the actual book the novel was 1948. Um, oh yeah. so all the Rowena stuff was added yeah yeah and also the wise the uh, discussion of. Um, so the these the the evil women also they are the sort of root of all the mythology of vampires, devils, werewolves, and all that stuff like that. 
but he tries to give it a sort of scientific basis. And that also is sort of downplayed in the novella, this whole linkage of probability. Of, <sighs> yeah. So they do. That's men- some of my favorite part. Yeah. I mean, he's sort of, it's implied, but I think he was using more sort of, you know, quantum mechanical knowledge, all that kind of stuff, like a little bit, maybe he was a little bit more knowledgeable and stronger in that knowledge in 1948 than when he first wrote the novel, because he, he was really just focusing in on his sort of experience of psychotherapy and, and what it was re- revealing to him. And then he decided to, you know, I mean, that's my guess. Sure. I really wanted that doctor to do my therapy. He was awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> Unleash now, your uh, shape-changing Danny, powers. I apologize if I'm going to alienate you with this question, just because I don't do know up. if you're if you're going to have any kind of way to answer this. But yeah. um, Hoy, did you did you see did you see connections to the A Merritt's Burn Witch Burn and Creep Shadow Creep? Because I I kept flashing back to those two stories while reading this. I did. I did. And I mean, we'd have no way of proving that. Williamson would have read him, but A. Merritt being probably one of the most popular writers of the era other than Burroughs, there's a high probability that he did. I mean, he definitely wrote for Amazing Stories and some, uh, let's say, Williamson. So I would have a strong suspicion that he would have read some Merritt. Whether or not he read those stories is another another issue that I don't know. Now, did you... did you prefer Darker Than You Think, or did you prefer Creep Shadow Creep slash Burn Witch Burn? Ah, that's interesting. This is almost like if this was the A. Merritt story, then Sam Quain would have been the point of view characters, right? And all the that's the, a good point, right? So he, this is like the literal flip side of those stories. So I think that there's a place for them together, right? And I think yeah. we benefited from reading this after we read the A. Merritt stories, probably because if we'd read the uh, A. Merritt stories after this, we would have been like. Oh man, you just kind of backed off of that stuff, right? Whereas here we, oh like, totally. Oh, yeah. Whereas this one, where this book was a lot darker than you would think. There you go. Mm. I see what you did there. <laughs> I didn't think it was that dark. But in the end, he's like, "Sure, I'll I'll become an evil vampire and like destroy all of mankind." That was just natural. <laughs> you know, I'll kill my three best. I'll kill my three best friends from college and my former mentor who betrayed me by not taking me on an expedition. <laughs> and the woman who used to bake cookies for me and play piano music for me all the time when we came over and hung out. I like what it says about Danny that she's like, I don't think that's that dark. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> now I'm afraid of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun reading this. I really did. I, I I agree that the pacing was kind of slower than I'm used to encountering, um, but overall, I just I thought the characters were great. I thought the story was great. Um, I also really dug as we were talking about the the kind of scientific explanations of the supernatural, and that's kind of a, a really kind of common thing of this era. You know that that was both of those things were happening with the A Merit stories we were discussing. Um, that's also a big part of the Harold Shea kind of Elspreg to Camp time travel stories is coming up with kind of scientific explanations to explain the supernatural. And I wonder if that kind of speaks to like this era, like the whole idea of like, like science, like really kind of being the laws that govern our world, I think was really kind of, kind of coming into the the consciousness of, of our, of like American culture and I think the the desire to try to explain the supernatural with that was really prevalent at the time. Then it makes me love yeah. it even more because in this, they're suggesting the science is just to cover up the supernatural. Right, right. I wonder yes. if this. I wonder if this tied into that whole sort of the Campbell, um, the camp. What's the whole? Well, Joseph, um, not Joseph. Uh, the Campbellian science fiction. You know, whereas. Before that, you know, the burrow and stuff was, it doesn't really matter. It's just like, oh, you fly to Mars and you can breathe along. You don't need spacesuit, And then you have to have a, a veneer of realism now, even in our horror fiction 
that had already started appearing in science fiction. Like, yeah. Even if, um, this does feel like that's the that 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 is starting to kind of come around in this. Right. And from what I know about Williamson, he was very concerned about giving um, uh, an, uh, an aura of 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 truthiness in his stories uh, to sort of get you in there, and then later on, you know, blowing it up. And so, and that's that's um, you know, I think even as uh, Danny were talking about this, there's a certain psychological realism uh, even from the very beginning, and it feels very much like a film noir of the era. At the beginning, he meets this, you know, the, the film noir woman. And they go yeah. to that weird bar with the sort of the red, black light and red light behind the glass <laughs> and everything like that, um, which seems like it, you could probably set up that bar. And I like how they describe as the chairs being deliberately uncomfortable to sort of subconsciously <laughs> force people to drink more to try to get comfortable. And as a bartender, I'm trying to keep track of how much money he's spending on booze. So they talk about the waiters, like Ken's taking the money and everything like, what, what's he's, well, how much did those drinks cost? Right. I think it was like a dollar per daiquiri, <laughs> which I guess is like what, you know, would be like $12 now, depending on, you know, if you're high end or not. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he also makes a point of her driving a $4,000 car, right? Which mm-hmm. is, and he, he drives a pre-war car and her $4,000 car, I guess would be like a $60,000, $70,000 car you know, in this day and age. And she's a, cub, a quote unquote cub reporter. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. And she lives in that big fancy high rise building and she doesn't want to be disturbed before noon. Yeah. Oh, sounds like my kind of girl. <laughs> <laughs> April seems like a pretty cool lady. Does like, I want to hang out? I won't lie. I'd I'd, I'd want to hang with 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 April. All right. I like that. There's a lot of talk. Sorry, but uh, of uh, like corruption up and down the the sort of the food chain. You know, he works for this guy who's basically the town boss. You know, who has all these interests, including the school newspaper. I mean, the uh, town newspaper, and he's trying to put up a guy for senate, right? And, you know, the guy, the, this guy has like all these mistresses and he suspects that April was one of the mistresses, which make, makes him crazy, mm-hmm. crazier. <laughs> right? so. That jealousy happened real quick. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's a catch, right? Right. Gotta, gotta sink those claws in. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I really dug the conspiracy component to the story as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like witches are somehow have infiltrated every part of human culture at this point. And now it's 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 the witches who will um, disprove magic with 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 uh, with their with with science. It's the witches who will write bad reviews in the newspapers <laughs> of any uh, book written about witchcraft as as being a real thing. You know, witches are behind everything in this massive cover up. That's right, what right. that kept me guessing. I was constantly wondering, so who's a witch in this book? Like I was like, mm, I want to know. I want to fast forward. What is in that box? You right. know, that kept the yeah. drive to keep on flipping those pages. Right, right. And that, of course, turned out to be sort of a MacGuffin anyway. Yep. But, but the um, yeah, but even the the again the again, if we had been written by Merritt, the Sam Quain would have been the hero, right? And then he can't even trust his wife, and he's trying to avoid his wife, <laughs> and you know, um, I like the. Um, you mentioned about witches. Yeah, writing bad reviews. That was pretty hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, and, and in this version, this was written after World War II. The, the novella specifically mentions Hitler, although they didn't know about the concentration camps about that time. But oh. obviously the selective breeding and all the sort of eugenics or the reverse eugenics, if you want to talk about it, of them like trying to rebreed these witch people because they'd been gotten so diluted, right, was really fascinating. And that would have been on people's minds very much, right, at the time. How was Hitler brought up in the novella? They mentioned because the, the first book was uh, in 1940, so the war was going on. I mean, mm-hmm. the novella. And so they were aware of the war going on and said, oh, you know, and the, the basically the people, uh, the expedition had had to come back because the war had really hotted up in Asia and Europe. And so they couldn't continue the expedition as opposed to oh. the expedition happening, um, you know, after the war. 
So. Oh, that's right. Because in the novel, they're talking about the conflicts with China were the reasons why they needed right. to get out of there. So right. they just replaced the Hitler stuff with conflicts with the, in China. Like, yeah, communist China and that kind of stuff like that. Exactly. I see. But, hmm. um, so they mentioned, there was a couple mentions there. And, you know, uh, but yeah, the idea of eugenics, I mean, people were obviously aware of eugenics in 1940, but not the sort of really horrible overtones that then came out after World War II once people became aware of the concentration camps and, and the death camps. So that's that. I think was probably had a lot of power that, you know, maybe we are have a little bit of distance from now a little bit. So I know that one of the things that they talk about being um, what what makes for a good twist, a good plot twist, is when the reader or the person who's watching the movie or whatever figures it out at the same time the character figures it out. Now, our big twist in this story is that they're trying to find out who is the child of night, this kind of like antichrist figure um, who's going to bring the witches back into their, their glory day. And we find out that it's our main character. Did you Were you guys surprised when that twist came around or had you seen it coming a mile away? I don't think I was overly surprised because there weren't too many other options that they were giving us clues about. And I mean, I figured if it was somebody that we had ran into, we would have already felt that I, I wasn't too surprised. What about you guys? Yeah. I did think at first it might've been the psychiatrist. Um, but ultimately, you know, why was she invest? Why was April investing so much time in Will Barbie? Right. And she was, she was bringing him to his fruition. Right. And, and as you say, and that, that made sense. So this is really a, a coming of age story in a weird way. Right. Or a, uh, you know, an origin story. <laughs> <laughs> That's I true. Don't, I want to hear the rest of it actually. That's yeah. a great point. This is like the start to his story. I want to see what how he destroys this world. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> or d- does he fail? Does he succeed? I mean, right now we know he's basically unkillable. Yeah. Right. Well, maybe we're already living in his world right now. <laughs> oh. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> April, where are you reincarnated? <laughs> <laughs> now, also, our main character has a pretty substantial character arc from somebody who completely does not want to be involved with with the, with this evil side and wants to protect his friends to by the end of the story he has accepted his role as the leader of of the witches did you guys believe in his character arc did you guys kind of follow this or did it feel forced to you i i think i did although what i didn't as much believe in is his sort of duality like day night day night like oh it's uh, oh it's still just dream like that's like after the first time and you hear this like no nah, it's probably not a dream dude you know but <laughs> 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 yeah. but what's your take danny i don't know how i feel about that because it all happened like you said it was a three-day thing and yeah i mean this transformation was not it just is bang 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 um i'm kind of stumped on that one i think i never i've never thought about it that's fine. Th- yeah. And it seems like the turning point for him was when he saw his body and saw that he was officially dead. It seems like in that moment, then he was like, okay, yeah, sure. I guess if, if I'm dead already, I might as well do this. <laughs> Although the alcoholism, him being an alcoholic does help that. Um, it makes it oh, more believable. Because right. it gave him that, that. that fatal flaw that could really, you know, mess with your psyche too. Right. Like that, they put that up front. The the talk about his, you know, his sort of denying his family and stuff like that. That sort of they backloaded a little bit, and so that wasn't. Um, I mean, definitely forefront the his dissatisfaction, his his avoidance, his his um, his sort of uh, repressed resentment, you know, about not being included in in, in the gang. Um, so yeah. I think that. 
like using like you know because we're like we're talking about some psychology stuff here i feel like this is a like maybe a good example of like labeling theory and labeling theory is the idea that like if you tell a kid he's bad he's going to start acting bad or like if you tell somebody they're dumb they're going to like stop trying to pursue academic interests right um, um so maybe there's just enough of like april telling him he's evil and he's like and she's like convinced him in his kind of uh sleepy drunken states to actually go out and do some murdering. So now he's like, okay, maybe I am then evil then. Like, sure. (laughs) Yeah, we should should just go around talking to people, telling people they're werewolves and see what happens. They're a werewolf, you know that? (laughs) I will say the one one twist I didn't see coming was at the very end when, you know, he's now transformed into a pterodactyl or a pterodon. Oh, that was weird. And when he, like, flies down at Sam Quain... I fully thought he was trying to save Sam Quain. It did not occur to me that he was actually trying to destroy the box so that he actually could become the leader of the child, uh, the the children of the night or whatever it is. I, I didn't expect that. I mean, yes. That, uh, they need or was to that happen, an accident? Right? We'll never know. It was all probability, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I mean, I think you are. You you do have to believe uh, in order for the story to work, that, that tension between what you think he, which way he may go still has to go very up to the very last minute. And, and that's what they do, right? It's pretty so. easy to uh, foil the whole attempt, really, if you look at it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They were not ready. These, 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 these big brains were not ready for the Children of the Night and for April's, you know, wiles. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> that's definitely true. <laughs> so this is the first Jack Williamson that we've read as a part of this project that we're doing. And Jack Williamson's name appears in the Appendix N, but no specific titles are cited. So who's to say which Jack Jack Williamson stories Gygax felt inspired the creation of D&D more than other ones? But while you were reading this, did either of you see through lines between this story and potential potentially the first version of D&D, the first versions of D&D or other role-playing games? I think there's a lot of usability. I'm not sure if there's a through line. I'd have to think about if there's a through line. The only one I saw that felt really obvious to me was in the discussions of lycanthropy, they specifically use as examples werewolves, werebears, werebears. Like they, the, the ones that they're using are specifically the ones that are in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Right. Although there's no werepterodactyls. <laughs> there's no werepterodactyls. Not but, yet. But also... But also, he, he's in that little paragraph. He didn't talk about where pterodactyls, but literally yeah. every one he talked about in that paragraph are the exact ones that are in the DMG. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not not the DMG, the Monster Manual. Right, right. So I hmm. feel like that had to have been taken right from there. Good question. Because that's that's too much of a coincidence that the exact animals that he mentioned in this story are also the exact animals that are listed as lycanthropes in the in the original Monster Manual. Right, right. And I guess, you know, when you're thinking about weird tropes in our daily life uh, in Western culture, we wouldn't necessarily think about all those other creatures. We'd think about werewolves, but we wouldn't necessarily think, oh, we're leopards and all that kind of stuff. That would have to have be brought into it from other sources, right? And so this is as good a place as any, right, to think about that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but, hmm. And one of the things that I always love about reading pre-Dungeons and Dragons fantasy fiction and sci-fi fiction is that the stuff is written kind of, I've talked about this before, about how it's written before Dungeons and Dragons kind of codified a lot of this stuff for our culture. And I love that we're, we're, we're reading fiction from an era when like the werewolf and the vampire as concepts are a little more fluid because this werewolf that we encountered and this vampire that we encountered are not like the werewolf and the vampire that we know of today. Mm-hmm. 
They're mm. very different, you know, because like he's he's basically just a witch who can transform into any shape, which isn't like really like the werewolves we know. And after he dies, she says, you're now a vampire. Mm. But like, it's still not like the blood sucking vampire necessarily, possibly, but but we don't really know. Right. And I, I, I like how different they are. Right. I think he's what he's actually doing is he's tapping into the actual mythology, as you say, but before it was transformed by like, you know, Bela Lugosi and Universal and Hammer Hearts, because there is one version of the Eastern European vampire, which is actually a corpse that never leaves its grave. Its, its spirit roams around outside of the grave at night and sort of attacks its like family members. It's, it's sort of a disease spirit rather than a, um, you know, a seductive, you know, Byron-esque figure um, in that regard. And then sort of April kind of splits the difference because she's quite seductive, right? And she never is in anything as shown as being anything other. Even when she's in her various animal forms, like she's a beautiful white wolf with the sort of very expressive eyes, right? And she smells good to him, mm-hmm. right? Um, so she's very sort of modernistic and sleek, right? And he's a little bit more primitive, right? He's like a weird pterodactyl at point. He's a weird saber-toothed tiger, <laughs> right? He's sure. a weird, bo- weird boa constrictor. <laughs> right. What I did love um we're talking about the the changing is that they speak about changing of the culture's most feared creature so you aren't stuck to being a werewolf like that's your form you you change as you go and that you know Mm -hmm. the the leopard is where you know in the jungle they were most terrified of and that's what the form they took i thought that was a really cool aspect of it so so i wonder what that says then about april actually being able to have her human form when she's astrally projecting so mm. the the most feared creature is the Fab fatale with red hair and green eyes right yep <laughs> for, for some <laughs> for some so now danny if you're going to try to run a game with a story like the one that we've read mm-hmm. for this episode what game system would you use to tell a story like this Tell you, tell you the truth, I want to use a Call of Cthulhu or something that's going to rack up the horror because I want to do the psychological aspect. I still want to bring that doctor in. The time frame would be perfect. Uh, I want to make sanity fleeting. So I really think it would be a horror genre. And I think Call of Cthulhu would actually work really well for it. Yeah, I like that. How about you, Hoy? Um, I definitely think Call of Cthulhu, if I was going to be sort of a weirdo and contrarian, like second edition of Chill, would probably work pretty well. Um but Call of Cthulhu, I think, is the best sort of to hang, you know, some iteration of that is the best thing to sort of hang horror on. I think there's probably some new mo- modern horror systems that I'm not as familiar with that probably could work pretty well. Um, within the context of traditional sort of D&D, I think that would be more difficult. Um, trying to think of whether there's any other systems that might work pretty well with that. But I think the ones that sort of privilege mood would be, be, be the most effective in that regard rather than, um, you know, something that's more, you know, ultimately mechanical. So. I agree, because this does not feel like a D&D kind of story. This game is not really about armor class and hit points and <laughs> things like that. Right, right. Um, and I almost feel like I would, instead of wanting to go in that direction, I'd almost want to take it in like the story game direction for something like this. Because one of the things that I really liked about this is it, it didn't feel like it was them versus the evil necessarily. Like he very much had an option of being part of the evil. Right. And I think in that sense, I think using kind of like a monster hearts kind of powered by the apocalypse engine game system might work really well for a story like this, but also any of the, the white wolf world of darkness products I think would also work well. This could be like another take on that kind of universe. Right. Right. I guess it depends on which uh, lens you want to put it through. Certainly if you're going to play it through the lens of will and April, then I think your approach would be the correct one. And then if you were trying to maybe 
play Sam Quain or the various people who were trying to like discover exactly how deep this which which bloodline goes than uh, a more traditional Call of Cthulhu type system. Other sort of monster hunter privileging system might work better. Mm-hmm. Um, the- I like though. I think. Sorry, go ahead. No, go on. I can stream it after. Um, I think you could still transport this to a fantasy context, context though, um, straight sort of high fantasy, because there's all that talk about the war between sort of humanity and these creatures in the the, the ice age and through these various ages in the past. So you could certainly still, uh, you know, put that there in these various spots. So, for example, oh, I agree. Yes, you know, you could do a, you could run a sort of more D and D game where these are the sort of the master villains. But, you know, they can take so many different forms, so you can stat them up as, you know, maybe this one uh, which person is not as proficient and doesn't change into multiple shapes, only changes into the bear, right? You know, so it's that, um, and then that that survival, being on the cusp of survival, always hugging the glacier with your dog and trying yeah. to escape from, you know. Yeah, so. I agree that you could absolutely port portions of this into D&D and use this in your gaming. But I think if I was going to be telling a straight-up darker-than-anything story... I wouldn't want right. to use a D&D system, but there's a lot of stuff here I think you could absolutely take and put into your fantasy, your fantasy right, gaming. Right. And I think all this astral projection, maybe there's some applicability to sort of astral plane, astral projection stuff as it's uh, developed in, you know, first edition D&D, uh, AD&D, you know. So, you know, I, I have to look at those rules again and see if there's any kind of one-to-one correspondence. I don't think so. I think it's more just of a mood thing, and but yeah. it's there. This would be really fun for a late-night dread game. Mm, oh yes, yes yeah. I like that. Well, in those Jenga, like I can just feel the tension mountain as it goes. Yeah, that's a that's a really good suggestion too. So now, the witches here and the witchcraft here and the kind of magic that they use. Do you find that there is place for that in kind of your contemporary fantasy gaming? Like, would you use these kinds of witches in your D anD D game or your DCC game or your black hack game? Yeah, think of the witches of Rashomon, right? And Forgotten Realms and like how wonderful this would, you know, translate over there and just throw that into any D&D set. And I can see me bringing this to Greyhawk, something like this. I love the idea of, you know, you changing your powers as where you are. It's not just a static thing. And that was one of my Mm -hmm. big points. Like I like that they're not just stuck to changing to these ability, you know, these chosen ones, that it's all about their surroundings. And mm-hmm. for modern fantasy, you said, absolutely. This, you could take April and just put her anywhere. Right. And Jeff, you made a good point about sort of the world of Narcissus games, because the magic here is very much like the magic in the first edition of Mage, you know, where you sort of just sort of say, oh, this thing could happen. So therefore it does happen with enough willpower. Right. So, <laughs> right. Oh, he could have, he, he, this is probably where he would wipe out if he was driving really fast up this road in the mountains. And so therefore... I can just chop his head off and it'll just look like it was an accident. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. One other no. thing I noticed that I feel like may have been a source of inspiration for Gary is the whole vulnerability to silver and also mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. they could only, they couldn't be harmed by mundane weapons. And like, that's something we Perfect. encounter so much in old school D and D all these damn monsters yep. who can't be harmed by mundane weapons. And I feel like I don't really encounter that very often in the appendix end. So it was interesting to kind of see that laid out here. Mm-hmm. That's really true. I didn't think about that. You got your plus one dagger. It's silver, though. Uh, I love it. Right. And I think um, maybe just because I've been playing DCC, but that's sort of been not as prominent anymore in sort of current day play that you have to have a specific weapon to deal with with certain kinds of creatures. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's uh, kind of now just damage reduction as opposed to, oh, you're not hurting it. Right. Exactly. Right. 
and then sort of their weird relationship with um and i like that the the sense of even when he's in this incredibly powerful form he has a sense of dread you know about the coming of the day or, or you know or being able to get to back to his body on time and those kind of things like that and i think that's um you know that's again that's probably again a good way if you're going to play from the sort of monster facing game so again monster hearts or or world of darkness or one of yeah. those games like that you, you know so it's not it's not it's not um one of the knocks on world of darkness at least as it was run back in the day it was it was really just superheroes you know at night right and this is definitely not that right even though he's got they've got superpowers it's not it's not that do you think that this is best geared you say the superheroes for an evil campaign or for a good like what side do you want to play on or what side as a mm. gm do you want to slant it towards well, and that's one thing I think is a fun thing about potentially running a game like this is I think that question has to be answered by the players. Mm. I feel like that's a that's a question you as the GM get to ask the table and you get to find out what they are going to answer, <laughs> which I like because I feel like that's not really something that we see too often. And especially because like oh. with D&D or games that are built off of D&D, you see on your character sheet what your alignment is. So you already know what decision you're supposed to make when that when that when that decision comes when when the option presents itself. Mm. But I like the idea of trying like an alignment free campaign where you don't necessarily have to do what's what's written on your character sheet and maybe you don't even decide what your character would do in advance and then in that moment you just kind of go with what feels right for the story and your character based on what you've been through. Mm. Absolutely. Now, Danny, actually, you just made me think of something, though, since you're talking about a good campaign, and evil campaign. What if you were running a game like a little more traditional, like Call of Cthulhu? And then, you know how usually when you go to Zero Sanity, that character's written off or becomes an NPC or just... What if you just then flipped the whole campaign and then you were playing a Sanity Zero campaign and all the characters were now cultists and had to... <laughs> As a GM, I would be the happiest person ever. It sounds perfect. Like You work that, you work that hard to go insane. You got to have some reward for it. Right, right. So... I think that would be a fascinating thing to then, yes, to, I mean, it's not inevitable, obviously, but if, if the players are willing to go with it, you play it this way and then as they, you know, play it sort of straight at first and then, you know, they have a choice at a certain point, right? Just like the way Will Barbie has a choice at a certain point, yeah. you know, so. This would be, um. Mm. so I love Shadow of the Demon Lord and in it, there there's, it's just a terribly corrupt world, but, uh, and there are no alignments, but you get corruption and you gain insanity for all the choices you do. They're making a modern system with that engine that when that comes out, I think it would be perfect for this uh, mm -hmm. in that deciding which way you're going to go. There's you, you don't know how your characters are going to go. Your players. Oh, I can't That's wait to cool. get my hands on it. Yes. Yeah. I have, honestly I have shadow of the demon Lord sitting on my shelf. I've hardly cracked it. I really need to look, give that book a, a, yeah, a I do close have the look. PDFs as well, but it yeah. is I think this, I remember the I think spells definitely a high, are very flavorful. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, this is obviously a very high trust exercise, you know, if you're doing this. But, you know, that's that's so I don't think it's um, an open table or convention thing. No. necessarily. You have to yeah. have the right game master and the right group of players. Otherwise, this is just going to turn into like the kind of chaos that isn't fun. Mm -hmm. You have to have people who really know each other and trust each other as gamers. And you're, you're all kind of on the same page together. Except for that one person that you ostracize and throw rocks at. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the kind of gaming we're talking about for, for, for this would not work very well, like at a con setting. 
with a bunch but, of strangers. Or maybe but, it would. Right. I don't know. But maybe maybe we're selling Rando's maybe, short. <laughs> it, it, it depends on the description you give it, right? Because there's a lot of people that this is not a one-way street game. This is not – you're not getting railroad. This is your decisions are going to – you know, maybe you you could make it as long as the players know beforehand they aren't getting streamlined into you know killing the big bad enemy at the end that this is going to be their right. call and how it goes. That's a good point. Definitely- you don't want to just give it the name of the adventure. You want to describe like this is actually what we're going to be doing here, and you're going to have important choices to make as a party. Right, right. And this is not. I mean, I have not ever played with the you know the various safety tools like the X card and whatever. But this seems like the case where you would do that. You know, if you're running that kind of game, you know. Um, but, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot to be mined here. And I, and I think that there's enough thematically that you could run. I mean, definitely run it in a modern context certainly would work. Or, um, or at least modern at that time was 1948. I wonder what it would take to bring it to 2018. Is there any other changes, do you think, that would have to make it work in 2018? We got to consider the internet on that one and like cell phones and the ability, because that would screw up this entire plot line. The ability right. to, you know all of a sudden broadcast something on YouTube and have everybody know it. So you definitely have right. to make a plan for that if you're going to, but you could keep the theme and the, the whole ideas. It would just. Right. You know, you have to add like a, a stat credibility points, right? Do you come across <laughs> like, uh, you know, sober, you know, Anderson Cooper, or do you come across like Alex Jones on your, like <laughs> telling about werewolves? And, you know, right? Oh, absolutely. As you're losing, as you're losing sanity, you're also losing charisma or personality points. Cause you just seem completely, out of whack and nobody trusts you anymore. <laughs> and cause and, in uh, fact, that's even happening in the story. Cause he talks about how he looks in the mirror and now he sees a lunatic staring back at him. And his, his skull is subtly changing, right? Cause it's, it's growing elongated, you know, cause they were, they were talking about all the, you know, measuring heads and stuff like that. And that seems to be a big theme with any sort of like, um, racial purity groups. Like we, we have to measure the skull to see the dimensions aft, four to aft, side to side, you know, what's the brow like, you know? <laughs> and that's why I love the alcoholic aspect of this because he talks about the changing. Is he just drinking too much? Is he not eating enough? And then it becomes, oh, there's actually more going on. So at first you're kind of left, what's going on? And I wonder also, you you talk about like the uh, internet, incorporating the internet and cell phones, like that could be both like um, a cool thing, but maybe not something to overcome. Maybe that's how this, um, mental virus spreads. Maybe it's dangerous for people to know about this stuff rather than, you know, trying to get, you know, get the no- the message out. It you know, awakens like maybe something. Exactly. Yeah. You trigger all the people who are like already sort of partially, you know, have this dissent, but don't know anything about it. And they're like, wait, I am a werewolf. That's what I've been missing this whole time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And what's what, one thing that I think would be interesting about playing this beyond the end of the novel is by the end of the novel, he's immortal. Right. You know, he can't be harmed. So he's kind of a, I mean, he's not a superhero, but he's, he's essentially kind of a Superman character in that, like the only thing that really harms Superman is kryptonite. And the only thing that really harms these guys is this like weird disc thing that like kind of doesn't exist anymore. And like silver hurts them, but it won't kill them. Um, so yeah, then you're, you're left with the question of how do you run a game for characters that can't be killed? How do you kill mm. a god? Right. Well, I think that the 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 interesting thing is that these things are these things the the primal knowledge of the sort of the these proto humans they knew how to fight fight these things right so the, the those tools are still out there it's just that they happened to find the ones in Alashan in you know in the, the Gobi Desert because it was near the surface right but 
when um, Rowena was looking for the same thing in Nigeria and, you know, there's these various witch hunters, you know, the Vatican had been doing. So the, the knowledge is still there, but it has to be brought out and, and become credible. And so Sam is discredited as a messenger against these things. But maybe this, again, if we're talking about in the sort of realm of conspiracy that someone believes in, one or two people believe him and they're underground. And it's almost like you're running, if you're running it from the standpoint of humans, then you're running almost like a French resistance in World War II game, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're secretly trying to find, you know, the right weapon or the ways to communicate with other cells and stuff like that. If you're running it from the point of view of the sort of the superhumans like like uh, Will and, and April, they're still not, they still don't have the numbers, right? They're still, they're, they're, they've infiltrated all of society. But if they were just to pop out in the open, right, they're still... At that point, I don't know, three or four billion people and they've just come out of World War II and they have all sorts of science. All sorts, so maybe they'll figure something out. Right. So there's still a sort of it still has to happen in the shadows, at least for a while. Yeah, that is one thing I really love about this project that we're doing, though, is we, we read these stories and it's really kind of clear that like the stuff that we're reading could really inspire any kind of gaming that you're interested in. You know, mm-hmm. and like Darker Than You Think is a great example because like you could use you could use a lot from this story to inspire your Dungeons and Dragons game or your Call of Cthulhu game or your Monster Monster Hearts game. Like there, there's so much to be mined from these stories. And also just in general, a good reminder of just how how important it is to be reading and be like watching cool movies and things like that while you're while you're running your games and being and like unashamedly just like ripping stuff off. Because like right, it, right. that's the way to get your best material. Yeah. Thank you for that because you really have awoken in me like that. I'm always so busy running games and writing stuff that I forget to actually pick up a book and read. And I had inspiration. I have screenshots of quotes from this book that I took like, oh, my gosh, I got to use that. Like I'm taking pictures as I'm going because library book, I can't underline in it. I do write my books, <laughs> but not this one. So. <laughs> Right. Oh yeah, uh, it is available as an ebook though, so you may you may want to uh, grab that one for your future uh, your future uh, archiving purposes, yes. I guess. <laughs> yeah, Although and won't I'm have really, the cool won't have the cool pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really curious to read more Jack Williamson because honestly, like th- these authors who are kind of lower on the list alphabetically, who don't have a specific title attached to them, uh, who are just a name on there. In my mind, I've kind of like I don't know. I I I I heard so much about Fritz Leiber before I read Fritz Leiber and Manly Wade Wellman and these names. Like I had a lot built up around them. Jack Williamson, I had like nothing built up around. And right. I, now I'm really excited to read more Jack Williamson. Right. I think this is. I think the only thing I've ever read of his. I don't know if this is atypical of his work um, or is representative of a fraction of his work, but. Uh, many people do say that this is his finest novel. I mean, I know he wrote a lot of short stories also as well. So um, it'll be interesting to, to to carry on in this process. But, uh, when I return this to the library, I'm going to get another one or have them order me one from another library. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm quite curious. Yeah, I, I just looked ahead. Our next Jack Williamson will be episode 83. <laughs> All right. When we so, read The Humanoids. Know, nice. The Humanoids. Okay. <laughs> Nice, nice. Fascinating. Okay, cool. So this has been an awesome conversation. Um, I'm curious, Danny, before we wrap this up, is there mm-hmm. any kind of like one thing that was like really like, like you really yes. wanted to talk about? Oh, cool. No, I want to read a quote from the book, if you don't mind. Please, of course. All right. Not consciously, Glenn drones smugly, but the unconscious has no morals. It is utterly selfish, utterly, utterly blind. Time means nothing and contradictions are ignored. Ooh, that's really cool. Good one. I just love it. I was like, oh, when the <laughs> psychiatrist, the doctor is talking, 
all about the the things that you repress and, you know, yes, I want to kill him from this slight back, you know, 15 years ago and goes on about it, just stirred something in me that makes me want to run like a psychological horror game. Heck yeah. And maybe you have stats for id, ego, and super ego, and you have to like make rolls to see how good you are at like uh, suppressing the urge to just like go for your basest <laughs> instincts. Let's write this. <laughs> 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 Gen Con 2018. Heck 19. Yeah. 19. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to blow some OSR minds and take it to an NTRPG or something. <laughs> exactly. Roll 3D6 for id, ego, and super ego. <laughs> Wait a minute. Down the line. <laughs> That's an awesome idea. There you go. All right, cool. And Hoy, was there any, any last thing you had on on, on your mind? No, no, I'm I'm very excited to read more Jack Williamson, and I, I think it was it's very uh, Danny. I didn't know about your work before, but I'm just ha- really happy that this seemed to be like the perfect confluence of like the the topic and, and you know the the host. So I guess guess so. I'm really happy to have the you know this conversation with you today. Oh, thank you so much. When I heard the title of the book, I literally got like goosebumps. I'm like yes, so thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a blast. All right. So our next few episodes, we are going to have pause for dramatic effect. (laughs) Episode 38 will be on Gardner Fox's Kothar of the Magic Sword. And episode exclamation point. (laughs) Exclamation point. (laughs) Kothar of the Magic Sword. Uh, And Fred Saberhagen's The Broken Lands will be episode 39. Uh, If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on on Twitter at at appendix underscore n, right? Yes. And uh, yes. And uh, if you like our show or have any comments, please do rate us on iTunes or your podcaster of choice. Uh, It really does help people find us. And we're also on MeWe, so you can join the Appendix N Book Club group on MeWe. MeWe for on G Plus till April and and Facebook as well. Okay, so uh, thank you. Uh, We hope to see you all out there reading books. Bye, cheers. (laughs) See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.